why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be in a couple of different passages uh, this morning, Matthew 16, Colossians chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter 4. Those will be our kind of three movements that we go through to really understand a singular idea. What does it mean that Jesus says that he's the head of the church? Um, today we're beginning a four-week investigation study, teaching time through what it means to be us, what it means to be together. The reason we're doing that is because it's always good to remember some of the foundational ideas of what it means to be a church family, what it means to be members together, what it means to be, as we've just reflected on, those who represent Christ in the world as the body of Christ. But it's also good because many of us have just joined Church in the Square through this very strange season of the pandemic, and it's good to hear from God's word what we believe these foundational truths uh, to be for us as a church family. Uh, lastly, the reason that we're taking a break from Romans and taking four weeks to consider what it means to be the church is because come September, we're going to make some key changes to our gathering. Some of those have already begun to take place. You actually are facing each other by design. You're facing each other because we think it's good Instead of looking at a stage and those who are like the professional Protestants up front doing uh, things for the church, but we actually see one another as the body, that we're supposed to confess with one another, we're supposed to love one another. There's a ton of one another's in the scriptures, so it's good that we see one another when we sing and when we pray and when we hear uh, from God's word. Uh, so we're going to be doing that. Our children are being incorporated into our gathering we are going to be using our liturgy time for times where we, the body, share, not just those up on the stage, but when we see a confession in our songbook or worship book, when we see an assurance, it's an opportunity for us to hear from one another. And one of the things that we want to learn through this time is what does it mean that we come together to worship and not just to learn? What does it mean that when we gather together as God's people, we are actually saying something because of God's word, to the watching world, to the kingdom of darkness, about who we have been called to be. And we have not just been called to be learners of the Bible, but those who actually embody or incarnate the scriptures of what Jesus called us to do. And so we're going to be learning through this, this next season about some of those changes, about why we believe God's called us to that. So it's a good reminder for all of us. Many of us are new and also because of these changes that we're looking at. And like I've said, we'll be studying, looking at the idea that Jesus is the head of the church Today And in the following weeks, we'll look at the message of the church, the people of the church, and the purpose of the church. So today is the head of the church, then we'll look at the message of the church, the people of the church, and the purpose of the church. And we'll look at those various passages today, but we don't want to rush ahead to those scriptures without asking for God's help. So would you pray, bow your heads with me, or pray with me and bow your heads so that we can ask for God's help as we come to the text. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are not a community of people who sort of together decide what's good for us. Because we don't know. Left to ourselves, we don't know what is good for us. Not because you have not given us intellect, not because you have not given us hearts, not because you haven't made us in your image, but Father, because this is your people. Jesus, we are your church. And so help us to submit to you today. Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see. And even as we're confronted by this word, as, as we are challenged by it, before we mount a defense for why we don't need to change, humble us in your sight. I pray that for myself, Father. Empower me, equip me, equip us, empower us as a church to be those who are not simply hearers of this word, but those who obey it, who do it. 
And so, God, as we look at Matthew, as we look at Colossians, as we look at Ephesians this morning, make us more the body of Christ you're calling us to be in Logan Square and these surrounding neighborhoods in the northwest side of the city. And by God's grace, as you send us to the far reaches of the world, all over the world for your glory. So, God, we ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, the first passage we're looking at is a story of Jesus going to a district known as Caesarea Philippi. And it's, a unique partic- and it's a unique place for Jesus to go to at this particular moment because Caesarea Philippi had just recently changed its name from Panius after the Greek god Pan, where we get our word panic because this was this god that had these horns of goats and beasts on a human body. And so it was meant to elicit fear in those who saw this god. And so they changed the name from Panius to Caesarea Philippi after Caesar Augustus and Philip the Tetrarch. So I think it's really instructive for us to understand that Jesus, who is always intentional, takes his earliest followers, after a couple of verbal fisticuffs with some religious leaders of the day, he takes his earliest followers into this very pagan and broken place, this city that has just exchanged one idol for another an idol made of straw and clay and material things for for idols of celebrity, for idols of mortal man who believe themselves to be gods. And so this particular space, into this particular moment, Jesus has one of the most significant conversations recorded anywhere in the scriptures with his disciples. So he leads them, Jesus does, his disciples into this time, into this space, and he asks them a question. And as Jesus is so good to do, he repeats the question to make sure that they understand and to make sure that he accomplishes why he is asking this question. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verses 13. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to those other three gospels, go back to the left. Matthew 16, verse 13 reads this way. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus leads his earliest followers into this pagan city. Again, just exchanged one idol for another and he asked them a very simple question. Who do people say the son of man is? This is a bit of a PR touch in to see what people are saying about the son of man, son of man being one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. And we know he's talking about himself because after they answer these sorts of prophets of, of old as perhaps what people thought Jesus or who people thought Jesus was, he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? So we know that Jesus is asking a question about himself. He's highlighting his messianic nature by speaking about himself as the son of man. In other words, when we talk about Jesus' messianic nature, we're talking about his understanding that he is the long-awaited hope of Israel. He is the one who has been promised and foretold for centuries who would come and set all things to rights for God's people. So that's the question. Who do people say that I am? So what's the answer? Well, in many respects, Jesus buries the answer in the question. And Peter famously responds, you are the Christ, the son of 
of the living God. And Jesus affirms this answer. He says, yes, you're blessed. You didn't figure that out on your own. God revealed that to you. And then he says he's going to build his church on this idea. He's going to build his church on this identity, on his own identity, Jesus says. Now, if we had time to go through all of Matthew, and, and if you would like to, we can do this at some point. We can go back through all of Matthew up until this point, and we could see that what Jesus was constantly teaching about was not the church, but the kingdom. So if we would have been savvy readers, starting in Matthew 1, we would have stopped all along the way and see that Jesus constantly was talking about the kingdom. And so... If we were those keen readers, we would have gotten to this place and we would have expected that Jesus would have said, and on this rock, I'm going to build my kingdom. But he doesn't. He says ecclesia. He says assembly. He says called out one. So Jesus is actually introducing his disciples to themselves in this moment, who they are going to become, a people through whom the kingdom of God would come. Jesus is introducing his disciples to who they are, to the church those who would be used by God to embody Jesus' kingdom coming here on earth. So that's you and that's me for those of us who are in Christ. That's who we are together. That's what it means to be us, the church. See, in this scene and through these questions and this affirmation of Peter's answer, Jesus is explaining two very fundamental ideas for us as what it means to be the church. What does Jesus essentially say? First, he says that the church is something that he builds upon himself. The church is built upon Jesus. He says, who do you say that I am? That this is the eternally important question that any church must ask and answer. And what's the answer? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus builds the church upon himself. Secondly, the church is built by Jesus. This is what we understand from this text. The church is built upon Jesus and the church is built by Jesus. After Peter's confession, Jesus says what? You're correct. On this rock, I will build my church. See, what Jesus' church is doing in this moment is he is revealing that he is the head of the church. The church is built upon Jesus and the church is built by Jesus. This is so important for us. Why? Because we all have a lot of ideas about what church is supposed to be right? I grew up in the church. I could give you a thousand reasons about why this should be like this and a thousand experiences about why that should be like that. So the question is not, what do you think the church is supposed to be, but how is Jesus building the church upon himself and how are we allowing, responding, submitting to the fact that Jesus builds his church? We don't. That's a lot harder than it may seem. That's a nice thing to shellac upon a plate and put it like in the foyer of your gathering space, right? That Jesus builds the church, but when it comes to our meetings, our expressions, our conversations, is that really what we believe? See, because the question is never, have you heard that before? Is that like an idea you're familiar with, but do you really believe it? This is what Jesus is beginning to shape in his people. Now, the question for us then is, how does Jesus build the church upon himself? And how does Jesus build the church? He does so through his death. This is critical for us to understand. That Jesus builds his church by dying for his church. If we are to understand anything about where we're headed in the next few weeks in this study, in this investigation about who we are, about what it means to be together, what it means to be us, we must understand that Jesus builds the church by dying for the church. And when we get that vision of Jesus' headship over all things, including the church, when we get that vision, we're going to do two things. We're going to worship him and we're going to follow him. They're not mutually exclusive, but these are two things that we do when we understand that Jesus is the one who builds his church by dying for his church. We'll worship him and we'll follow him. Here's what I mean. Please meet me in Colossians chapter 1. 
So turn to the right a couple of books of the Bible. You'll get to Galatians, then Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians if you keep turning to the right. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what Paul writes to this first century church. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, many believe this particular passage is not original to Paul. This was a particular passage likely memorized, recited, and played on repeat in churches all along the first century or all over the first century world. There was something familiar, something that they knew, something that they memorized, something that they recited, words that summarized their love for Jesus, their belief in Jesus, and their exaltation of Jesus. It's about worship. It's about worshiping Jesus. And I think that's really helpful for us to keep in mind. Because sometimes we're supposed to dissect every word, every punctuation mark, perhaps, every idea in the scriptures, every line, much like what we're doing in Romans. But other times, it's good to just allow the words to captivate you. It's good to simply just take a step back and let the fullness of a paragraph or a passage lay hold of your heart to allow the full weight of something that God has said or demonstrated or who he is simply wash over you for your joy. Perhaps like an Old Testament passage, perhaps like a psalm or a story of Jesus or like Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Think about it. When we take this passage in as a whole, this, this hymn, we behold Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, through him, for him, are all things. He is above all things. He's over all things on earth and in heaven, the visible world. So what you can see, the invisible world, what you cannot see, all things that you know and all things that you've ever forgotten and all things you've never known. He is Lord over all of that. All rulers, all dominions, all thrones, all powers, all presidents, all peoples, all governors, all mayors, all moms, all dads. All, are you picking up what I'm throwing down? He's over all Things. This is what this text is celebrating. So sometimes we don't need to go, well, what does that particular word mean? That's helpful. Sometimes you just need to step in and allow this picture that is being painted by this particular apostle, just allow it to overwhelm you and say, wow. Wow. He's glorious. He's good. He, he is unlike any other. He is God. He is supreme. He is everything. Sometimes in our walk with Jesus, we are not overwhelmed by him. We're just kind of following him. What do you have to say to me today? What lesson do you want me to learn? What thing do you want to grow in me? Jesus is my own little personal guru who I'm just supposed to become a little better Christian and we are not floored by him. It's passages like this that are meant to hold us in tension, to take a breath and to just behold him. 
See, Paul was reminding the Colossians, and by God's spirit, he's reminding us, church in the square, that our initial response to the reality that Jesus is the head of the church, who builds the church by dying for the church, is to just worship him. Are you with me in this? Just worship him. It looks like a lot of things. Worship does not just mean that we respond in a song. It means that we respond in acknowledging who he is in all that we do. See, Paul is helping us to see that worship, in worshiping Jesus, we're doing so out of a response that he is greater than us, he is in charge of us, and yet he is connected to us. Kids, I hope that's helpful. Jesus, Gloria Elizabeth Helveston, is greater than you. And that's really good news. Sucks to be a pastor's kid, right? Kids, this is really good news. Q, it is such good news that Jesus is connected to you, that he is in charge of you, right? Roman, that's good news for your soul, my man. This is really good news that Jesus is greater than you, that Jesus is in charge of you, that Jesus is connected to you. We're supposed to worship. And see, at a basic level, what is worship? Worship is building our lives around God. Let's not miss this. If Jesus builds his church upon himself by dying for us, then he rebuilds our lives by centering us on him, stripping away anything and everything that is not built upon him. Are you tracking with me on this? This is why following Jesus is so hard and why you might look at your life and go, it seems like everybody else is doing okay and I'm suffering and hurting because Jesus is stripping away selfishness and pride because he doesn't build his church on those things. He's stripping away ambition that is worldly. He's stripping away your love for money. He's stripping away your, your lust of the flesh and the pride of your eyes. Why? Because that's not how he builds his church. He strips away our inoculation with celebrity culture. He strips away our value of things that are here one minute and gone the next. He is stripping away our love for being instantly gratified. Why? Because he doesn't build his church like that. He builds his church upon himself because he is greater, he is in charge, and he is connected to us. But we don't like worshiping God, and, and let me just concede the fact. This is why it's really hard. Worship doesn't feel very productive to us. Worship doesn't feel, and if it's not productive, then we're like, well, hopefully it's fun. Sometimes worship is not fun. So usually we only do things if they're productive or fun. We don't know anything else. Those are the two modes we've got as human beings. But worship is something else altogether entirely. Observing this temptation and misunderstanding, author, speaker Marva Don wrote this. To worship the Lord is, in the world's eyes, a waste of time. It is indeed, she says, a royal waste of time, but a waste nonetheless. By engaging in it, we don't accomplish anything useful in our society's terms. Worship ought not to be constructed in a, construed in a utilitarian way. Its purpose is, to gain, not, is not to gain numbers for our churches to be seen as successful. Rather, the entire reason for our worship is that God deserves it. See, first and foremost, we do not worship Jesus because it is helpful to us. We don't worship Jesus because good things happen to us when we do that. We don't worship Jesus because it seems productive or effective or entertaining. We worship the Lord who is the head of the church because he deserves it. Because he builds his church by dying for his church. So we respond in worship. That's our response to the reality that Jesus is the head of the church who builds the church upon himself, who builds the church by himself, who builds the church by dying for his church. We worship him. So that's always the question for us. When we gather, is it about worshiping Jesus or is it about something else? Is this about worshiping God and beholding him and centering our lives on him or is it something else? 
The second thing we do as part of our worship is that we follow him. See, we see this all the time in the scriptures, that, that people respond to Jesus first by cowering in worship to him, and then he says, well, come after me, deny yourself, and follow me. This is constantly the rhythm of how Jesus makes disciples. They worship him, and he calls them into following him. To see this, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're still in Colossians, go back to the left, three books of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. People in my group busted me up this week that I didn't repeat the book of the Bible in the chapter and verse enough, so I'm trying to do that more, improving every week. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the or the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here it is. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. First, it's good to keep in mind the he that Paul is referring to is Jesus. Jesus is the one, ultimately, who has called those to be apostles and, and on to serve these various roles within the local church. And so because Jesus is the head of the church and builds the church by dying for the church, he decides, he has complete authority. He decides in the ways in which his church, or to carry the metaphor, his body is supposed to function. So in Paul's words, following Jesus as the head of the church is about attaining unity as the people of God, the body of God, and faith and knowledge and maturity. See, out of worship, we follow Jesus, the head of the church, in the way that he structures the body and the way that he grows the body, the way that he structures the body, and the way that he grows the body. I think according to Ephesians 4, we can come up with at least four ways we've got to follow him. Four ways that we've got to follow him that hopefully will give us some clarity about what this means for us as a church to know that Jesus is the head of the church. See, we follow Jesus by calling and affirming what Paul writes about as qualified shepherd teachers or elders and representatives of Christ's headship. See, Jesus exercises his authority directly through his word and by his spirit. He does not need an intermediary, yet he also exercises oversight through his people, through those whom he has redeemed. See, whereas in the early church there were apostles and prophets and evangelists demonstrating the word and, and oversight of Jesus' people, today, the text tells us, this, this responsibility of headship is embodied by the elders or shepherd teachers, is what Paul says, of the local church. And this idea of headship or representation, particularly as it is written about in the scriptures, is one of the primary reasons that we believe that the scriptures, the Bible teaches, that qualified men are those who are called into this role of elder. See, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul teaches about male eldership or headship as a reflection of the headship of Adam, even from creation on and through Christ. 
This is not patriarchy. This is not authoritarianism. This is biblical headship. And, and here's why we see this as an altogether different thing. Because if Jesus builds his church by dying for his church, then the teaching and oversight of an elder team must always be done in a self-giving and humble manner. See, we shepherds who are under shepherds under the great shepherd Jesus are called daily to die for the sheep. This is not about some modern view of leadership. This is about headship as reflecting, representing, embodying, giving a witness to Jesus Christ. So we follow Jesus through the ways that he calls us to organize or to structure the body. Secondly, we follow Jesus by equipping and being equipped for the work of ministry. This is so important for us. If we had more time, we would focus on this for quite a while. This is so important that I think many of us are pushing and pulling on this a lot. So that we follow Jesus by being equipped and by equipping for works of ministry. In other words, we follow Jesus by both receiving and giving. Now, often people go to somewhere like Mark chapter 10 and say, well, Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. However, Jesus also received care from angels in Matthew chapter 4. He received care from a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. He even allowed a man to carry his cross in Mark chapter 15. See, Jesus did come to give, but he also received. Many of us are tempted only to receive or only to give, but in doing so, we are failing to fully follow Jesus. You see, when we do not merely receive, or when we only receive ministry, we become consumers. But we don't just give ministry as if we don't have any weaknesses. Every member of the body has a function and has needs. Hear this church in the square. You have been gifted immensely to bless your brothers and sisters, but your brothers and sisters have been blessed immensely to take care of you. And I don't know where this is landing, but some of you are like, I'm the one who helps. I'm the one who helps people. I don't let people know I have needs. That's the Holy Spirit going, you're supposed to. I've made you to receive care. For others of us, we don't help anybody. We come and receive and take and get frustrated when the things that we receive and take are changed at all. And this is the Holy Spirit saying, I've actually empowered you and gifted you with a way to bless your brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be those who give and those who receive if we are those who follow Jesus. Thirdly, we follow Jesus by growing up together. And I think this is this togetherness that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See, our unity is foundational to our maturity. This is why the pandemic was so hard and should have been for Christians. Because there was something about our visible and physical unity that was put at odds. There was something about our even maturation that should have been thrown off its axis a little bit. To be sure, God is faithful and God provided and God met us in our need, but our unity is the way that we become fully mature in Christ. Look again in verse 13. It says, through faith, through knowledge, through maturity. These are shared realities of God's people. In other words, you cannot be doing spiritually well if your church family is suffering. That makes no sense. That makes no sense because we are in this together. And so you can't go, well, I'm really feeling close to God, and I know these other folks at Church in the Square, I hope they catch up to me, because I'm really growing. We are supposed to grow together. We're completely interconnected with one another, that our spiritual formation is tied together. 
that means that things like com competition and comparison never lead to Christ-likeness, but only unity through love does. Lastly, we follow Jesus, not simply through the way that we structure our church, not simply through the ways that we equip and receive and give, not only through growing up together, but Paul summarizes all of it in Ephesians 4 by loving each other. The way we grow, or rather the way we follow Jesus, is by loving each other. The last portion of this passage, I think, controls the whole passage. As we learned last week, that loving God and loving others is the central command in, in which the fullness of the law is fulfilled. See, in, in loving each other, we fulfill all that God has commanded for us. And as the head of the church, what Jesus did before he said, you need to love me and love each other, he loved us first. This is the beauty of our Lord, who is the head of the church, who builds the church by dying for the church. As he loved us first and showed us what love looks like and empowered us to be those who love each other. It makes sense then. When the church follows Jesus, who has loved them, the body of Christ actually grows up. Love is the thing that nurtures and grows and makes us more like the church he's calling us to be. See, it begins with this understanding that Jesus is the head of the church, and he builds the church upon himself, and he is the one who builds the church. He does this. He builds the church by dying for us. He builds the church by dying for us. And in seeing this and understanding who he is, we're to be those who respond in worship. We are to be those who follow him. You see, it's really quite simple. If Jesus is our Lord and our God, if he is the head of the church, then we're going to worship him and we're going to follow him. And that's the way in which our church family grows more into the body, the people that he has called us to be. So if we're not worshiping and we're not following, it's very likely that we have yet to ask and answer the question appropriately, who do we say that he is? Who is he? What is he like? Who is Jesus? Because when we understand his nature, it flows into our identity as the head into the body who holds all things together. And until we do that, we will be like a body without a head. But thanks be to God, Jesus is the head of the church and he is building the church and he has built the church by dying for the church. So may we respond as God in Christ has loved us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need help. We need help to become who we are. We need help to acknowledge what your disciples were being called to acknowledge, that they are the church, the saved and sent ones who are meant to embody and be the body of Christ in this world. So help us, Father, where we are building our church and even our lives on anything other than you we're worshiping or following anything in our own lives and in our church and anything other than you because we truly desire to become the people you're calling us to be that we would represent Christ well in this world in this city in this neighborhood in the northwest side of Chicago and we ask that for your glory and our good in Jesus name amen